Second Kings chapter 13 is where we begin tonight, and uh, we hope to make it through chapters 13 and 14. Chapter 13 deals hardly at all with the kingdom of Judah. It concerns two kings over the northern kingdom of Israel, the two kings Jehoahaz and Jehoash. So let's just begin right here, uh, chapter uh, 13, beginning at verse 1. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 17 years. Now, if you happen to remember from previous chapters that we've studied, this king Jehu was a very important king in the northern kingdom of Israel. He's the one that God specifically called and raised up to bring judgment to the sinful dynasty of Omri. And the most infamous king of the house of Omri was Omri's son, known as Ahab. Most of you are familiar with Ahab and Jezebel, that sort of despicable duo, that really bad couple of uh, the history of Israel. Well, they were of the dynasty of Omri, and they were so sinful that God raised up a man named Jehu to bring judgment upon them. And Jehu stands as a very interesting character in the book of 2 Kings because God gave him great opportunity. He gave him the opportunity to found a whole new dynasty that could have, if he would have been obedient, it could have been on the same level as David's dynasty that ruled the southern kingdom of Judah. But Jehu was not obedient. He instantly, for political and probably economic reasons as well, began to imitate the idolatry way back to his uh, forefather, at least on the throne of the northern kingdom, a man named Jeroboam. In any regard... Uh, Jehu had a son. Jehu died, of course, as it happens with the kings and everybody else. And this man named Jehoahaz took the throne after him. Uh, That was verse 1. Now in verse 2. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Now again, we remind ourselves, what were the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat? This was the man who first broke away from the united monarchy of Israel. We remember that at one time, under kings Saul, David, and Solomon, there was a united kingdom. All the twelve tribes of Israel were in one kingdom. But in the days of the son of Solomon, whose name was Rehoboam, He was such a wicked man, Rehoboam was, that God allowed there to be a civil war in Israel and the ten tribes, excuse me, the twelve tribes split up into two different nations. A northern kingdom of ten tribes ruled over initially by this man Jeroboam and then the southern kingdom known as Judah made up of two tribes uh, ruled over by David and his descendants, or I should say the descendants of David. David himself ruled over the united monarchy. Anyway, what was the son of this Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel? His sin was the false worship of the true God. Now we just remind ourselves that there's a difference here, isn't there? You can worship a false god, such as Baal or Ashtoreth, as they were prone to do in these days of ancient Israel, or you can worship the true God in a false way. And that was the sin of Jeroboam. He set up a golden calf 
in two places in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he said, don't go to Jerusalem and worship God. Let's just worship here because it's more convenient. These golden calves symbolize Yahweh for us. Well, it was obviously a, a great sin of idolatry because it was worshiping the true God, but in a false way. Well, as we read right here in verse 2, that this man, uh, his name was Jehoahaz, he followed in the same sins as Jeroboam. Now, verse 3, then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. So Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of Syria oppressed them. So as this wicked king continued in his idolatry, we see that God did what's familiar with his dealings with his people under the old covenant, that when they were wicked, he left them to themselves. He didn't protect them the way he might have protected them otherwise. And they came under the oppression of their enemies. In this case, it was those people who lived approximately to the north and a little bit to the east of, of Israel. That would be the Syrians. Now, it's sort of interesting if you study history that was going on in the world at this very time. This was the time of the rise of the mighty Assyrian Empire. I know it sounds a little bit confusing, so I hope you can distinguish between the Syrians and the Assyrians because they weren't the same nation and they weren't exactly friendly towards each other. But during this time, the Assyrian Empire kept the Syrians weak and unable to expand their influence into Israel. But there was a time when there were internal problems in the Assyrian kingdom, you know, struggles for the throne and fighting back and forth. And at the times when there was turmoil among the Assyrian Empire, then the Syrians could act in a stronger way. And this was just one of those times when they made more and more pressure down into the northern kingdom of Israel. And so what was the reaction of Jehoahaz? You saw it there in verse 4. It says, Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord, pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. And doesn't that blow your mind? Jehoahaz was an ungodly man. And this prayer did not ma mark a lasting revival or a real repentance in his life. Yet God listened to his prayer. All right, I, I don't mean to upset anybody's theology or anybody's teaching, or I don't mean to contradict any of the great teachers that you might have heard in the past, but have you ever said yourself, or have you heard it said, God will not hear the prayers of the ungodly? You know what? He did right here. Jehoahaz was an ungodly man, and he stayed ungodly, but yet he cried out to the Lord in this situation, and the Lord answered his prayer. Why? Well, it wasn't for the sake of Jehoahaz. It was for the sake of Israel. God listened to his prayer because of his great mercy and because of his care for Israel. I think we could say this. God is under no obligation to answer the prayers of the ungodly, right? Now, unto the godly, unto those who pray according to the will of God, there are secure promises in the word of God that he hears our prayers and answers them, right? But there is no such promise made to the ungodly. But there are times when God, out of pure mercy... Out of nothing but the riches of his grace, he says, this is an ungodly man, but for my own purposes, I will answer his prayer. And that's what he did in these days of Jehoahaz. So let's take a look now, starting at verse 5, for the rest of the reign 
of Jehoahaz. We read, Then the Lord gave Israel a deliverer, so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians. And the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. I want you to notice that, though. Isn't that interesting? Who was this deliverer? We have no idea. It's an anonymous deliverer. This reminds us of the pattern that we often see in the book of Judges, where Israel slips into apostasy, God allows them to be humbled under their enemies, they cry out to God, he sends a deliverer, and then they escape from their enemies. And that cycle is repeated again and again and again and again for 400 years in the book of Judges. But here, in almost a similar way, God sends an anonymous deliverer. And, you know, we should just pause just for a moment and think about that, right? You might be a great man or a great woman of God and make an amazing contribution to to the benefit of God's people and to the advancement of his kingdom, and nobody may know your name. I wonder what it's going to be like when we're in heaven and we get to meet this guy, this deliverer who God greatly used. I have this crazy thought in my mind I was thinking about as I was preparing to study tonight that there would be four or five guys who come up to you in heaven claiming to be this guy because they would all want to take credit for being the deliverer that no one knows who he is. I don't think that would happen, obviously, but there's some anonymous man in heaven who is actually this deliverer. And it just reminds us that you don't need a great name to do a great work for the Lord. Now, despite this deliverance, look at what it says there beginning at verse 6. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin, but walked in them. And the wooden image also remained in Samaria. For he left the army of Jehoahaz only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz, and all that he did, and all of his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. Then Joash, his son, reigned in his place." You see, though God answered their prayer, though God sent them a deliverer, Israel continued in their false worship of the true God. I just want to remind ourselves, you know, many times today, people regard that as an almost insignificant sin. Well, it doesn't really matter how we worship God, just as long as we do it. But, you know, I would suggest to you that it does matter how we worship God. That there is such a thing as worship in spirit And in truth. Now, you know that Jesus said that. You remember that in John chapter 4? He said it to the woman at the well and all of that, that God wants to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Well, you know, there's a corollary to that, don't you know? Therefore, it is possible to worship God in the flesh and in falseness. Correct? And we just have to say that certainly at some times, Christian people, when they come together, they don't worship God in spirit and in truth. We can't simply say that everything God's people do in the name of worship is actually the true worship of the true God. Now, sometimes it's the false worship of the true God. And I'm not here to to talk about, you know, this song or that approach or this philosophy or this new thing. I'm not talking to evaluate anything specific. I just want to draw your mind to that idea that it matters how we worship God. You, You can't just say, hey, well, we're all just worshiping the Lord, aren't we? Well, again, it's possible to worship the true God in a false way. And these were the sins of the house of Jeroboam that they continued in. 
And then it says, therefore, because of that, we saw this in verse 7, that he left of the army of Jehoahaz only 50 horsemen. <laughs> only 50 horsemen in the whole kingdom of Israel. And that's pretty lame, isn't it? That's not much of an army. 50 horsemen. And so you could say that at this point, Israel was delivered, right? God delivered them from the Syrians. But they were also apostate and they were also weak. Their lack of fellowship with God made them weak. Or it could be said that, their, uh, that God made them weak because of their lack of fellowship with him. And so we saw this summary of the reign of uh, Jehoash here. Look at it here, beginning at verse 10. It says, in the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, this is the son of Jehoahaz, uh, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 16 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, do you get tired of reading this about the kings of Israel? Okay, we remind ourselves. In the southern kingdom of Judah, you had a variety, right? You had some good kings and you had some bad kings. In the northern kingdom of Israel, how many good kings did you have? Zero. None. Now, I, I remind you that one king came close to being good, or you could say he started out good, and that would be Jehu. Jehu had a chance at goodness, but he didn't take advantage of it. But if you get tired of reading about bad kings, don't read the, the story of the northern kingdom of Israel. Anyway, it says, He reigned 16 years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, but walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, all that he did, and his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers, then Jeroboam sat on the throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. So this was the grandson of King Jehu, who founded the dynasty of Jehu, but he continued on in the same sins as his father and his grandfather, and they continued on with this great war with the southern kingdom of Judah, which we'll read a little bit more about later. Uh, now, on to verse 14. We read, Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Well, stop right there. Right in the middle there of verse 14. It tells you. Elisha. Now, who are we talking about here? We're talking about the second of these two great prophets who had similar names, Elijah and Elisha. This second prophet, this man who had done spectacular miracles through his hands, who had seen people raised from the dead, who saw food miraculously provided, who was used of God to do absolutely amazing miracles. What does it say right there? He became sick with the illness of which he would die. That tells us something right there, doesn't it? It tells us that even men of faith and miracles are not immune to sickness and disease. This great man became sick like others, others whom he had healed as a channel of the power and the blessing of God. I mean, you read it right there and it's almost astounding. Not only did he become sick, but he became sick with the illness which, of which he would die. Though God used Elisha on many occasions to heal other people, God appointed this illness to be the way that Elisha went from this world unto the next. Let me just remind us all that God has no single way that he uses to take his people from this way to the next, to this world to the next. Sometimes you hear people talk that is, if, you know, if you're really right with God, 
you'll die in your sleep when you're about 95 years old. You know, and, and the day before, you'll be out like mowing the lawn or washing the car or something like that. You know, you'll just be a full strength and full health, and then one day you'll just die in your sleep and that's it. Well, listen, praise God for such a glorious departure. But we all know there is no one way that God takes his people home. And this great man of faith, of whom there's nothing here to indicate to us that there was anything wrong or faltering or lacking in his faith, he got sick and he died. It's a mistake to believe that all godly men die in their sleep without even a hint of prior illness. This was a very godly man, yet he became ill and he died. Now, again, let's pick it up here, beginning at verse 14. Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. I want you to think about this. Was this a godly king or an ungodly king? Ungodly king. And the reaction of the king of Israel might seem strange, having just read the the description of sin and evil that marked his reign. However, it's important for us to remember, though he was a false worshiper, he was a false worshiper of the true God. He, He did have some respect for the true God, and therefore he had some regard and honor for Elisha. I'll tell you what, you have to say, this is a real credit to Elisha. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, Dear friends, let us seek so to live that even ungodly men may miss us when we're gone. Oh, that's a good way to live. I mean, I want to live a life of such godliness that even the ungodly people around me are sorry that I've left. But anyway, he comes and he says this same phrase that Elisha said to Elijah, or said about Elijah, when Elijah departed this world in a chariot of fire way back in the beginning chapters of Second Kings. He said, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Uh, Elisha said these words to Elijah at the very end of his life. And when he said this, what he was doing was he was recognizing the true strength of Israel. He recognized that the strength of Israel was really in the presence of the prophet of God. I don't know what we would say today. You know, symbolizes the military strength and protection of, of, a, of a nation. You know, the nuclear warheads or the, uh, you know, the, the atomic submarines or the aircraft carriers or something like that. But he was saying this mighty military technology, listen, you're really those things that are a protection, not those things themselves. Joash saw that this real strength and protection of Israel was slipping from this earth and he mourned it. So look at what the reaction was in verse 15. And Elisha said, take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it and Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the east window. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. All right. It really helps if you picture this scene in your mind. Can you see an old man, you know, coming up, 
Maybe he's shaking. There's a tremor in his voice. And here's the young king, you know, maybe a little bit casual, a little bit unconcerned. He thinks, what's the prophet doing now? It's a weird. I came to pay my respects. And now he's telling me to shoot some arrows. This is very, very strange. And so he says, well, listen, I'm going to show you a little lesson, the prophet says to the king. You just said that you were concerned about the strength and the protection of Israel leaving this earth. That's why you cried out the phrase, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. You're concerned about this. So let me show you something about the strength of God. I want you to take an arrow and then I want you to shoot it out. And I want you to do this as the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. And Joash, all you have to do is shoot that arrow in faith. And then he goes on to say in verse uh, 17, For you must strike the Syrians at Aphek. I want you to notice something. Elisha made it very clear that there was a connection between shooting the arrows toward the east and a strike against Syria that would bring deliverance to Israel. When he opened the door to the east, or the window to the east, he was facing towards Syria. And so what he did was he shot an arrow towards Syria. By the way, that was an ancient custom that could be interpreted as a declaration of war. If a king wanted to declare war, he would open up a window or go to a window that faced the country that he wanted to and draw an arrow and shoot it out. It was a way of saying, declare war against them. And can't you just see the, the, the prophet with his hands on the king's hands, drawing the, the bow back and letting it go and the arrow flying out. And then Elisha says to him, that's the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. That's what you have to do against Syria. God will be with you. I'm leaving this earth, but God will be with you and he'll guide you your hands just as I'm guiding your hands now. A a pretty plain picture, isn't it? Then turn to verse 18. Then he said, take the arrows. So he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. Now I need to stop you right there. When he said strike the ground, there's two different ways that that could be interpreted in the Hebrew. In the English, it makes it sound like he told him to grab a bunch of arrows and hit the ground with them. In the Hebrew, it's probably the idea that when he says strike the ground, he means shoot the arrows out the window so that they hit the ground. You know what I mean? Don't shoot towards anything. Don't, don't shoot at that bird. Don't shoot at that tree. Just shoot and let them strike the ground. But shoot out arrows in the way that we just did before. So, so don't think, I, I don't think the idea here was he said, grab a bunch of arrows and start beating the ground with them. He said, we just did this together, right? My hands were on your hands. Now, king, I want you to do this by yourself. Grab the arrows and shoot them. So what did he do? It says, so he struck three times and stopped. Okay, let's review the the process here. Pick up the arrows and shoot them out the window. So he picks up a quiver, and I don't know, what are there? How many arrows? Six? Ten? I don't know. There's a quiver full of arrows. So he picks one up, and he shoots it. Man, this is dumb. All right, I'll do another one. You know, he can sense the prophet looking at him like, aren't you going to do another one? All right. Picks up another one. He senses the prophet still, man, gee, okay, one more. Picks up an arrow, shoots it out, and then he goes, all right, are we finished, Elisha? What's going on here? And he stopped. Now listen to what it says here, verse 19. And the man of God was angry with him. 
and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. I want you to think this about the ways of God. Sometimes people want to honor God's sovereign plan so much that they act as if human initiative has nothing to do with it, right? God just does everything, we do nothing, and he moves us around like little robots on a chessboard. I'll tell you what, how do you deal with this? How many battles will Israel win against Syria? You know, they could have won six, but now they're only going to win three because this guy only shot three arrows through the window. What? Yeah, apparently, what this man did had a great consequence. In any way, Joash just heard Elisha make the connection between the arrows shot through the window and the coming victory over the Syrian army. He knew that those arrows represented the Lord's deliverance of Israel against Syria. And so when he heard this promise, strike the ground or shoot the arrows so that they hit the ground, Joash timidly received this invitation of the prophet. He didn't receive it with boldness or with faith. He shot three arrows and he stopped. He didn't sense what he should have sensed, that the arrows represented victories and battle over the Syrians and that he should have received the prophet's invitation more boldly. He said, give me that quiver. I'm going to shoot them all. If this is something God has me, if this is the arrow of the Lord's deliverance, I want all of the Lord's deliverance that I can have. You know what I think is amazing about this? I think this is an amazing illustration of prayer. Elisha clearly asked Joash to do something that modeled prayer. Think of a man shooting an arrow out of a window just like Joash was supposed to do. Well, listen, it required effort and aim. So does your prayer. Prayer requires effort, right? Have you ever tried to pray without effort? What happens? You fall asleep in about two minutes, don't you? Or your mind is hopelessly wandering. Listen, it it takes effort to pray properly, but it also takes aim. You have to direct yourself towards something. Well, here's Joash trying to shoot out a window. You know, he's got to aim towards the window. He can't just be going anywhere. He's got to have effort and aim. Secondly, shooting arrows required instruction and help from the prophet of God. He had to know what to do. The prophet told him what to do. It's the same way with our prayer. We need to listen to the word of God so that we're instructed in how to pray. Next, shooting the arrows had to be done through an open window. And don't you love it when the Lord opens up a window for you in prayer? When you just sense in your spirit that God has opened up something for you to pray about And you just pursue it aggressively and say, this is it, Lord. This is your will. I'm going to pray through this open window. Uh, Sometimes when we sense that open window, we say, well, I don't have to pray. God's opened it up. That's just the wrong reaction to make. The correct reaction is God's opened a window all the more. Am I going to shoot the arrows of prayer right through it? Shooting the arrows had to be done without knowing the exact outcome ahead of time. The target was only known by faith. Well, isn't that how it is in prayer? You don't know the exact outcome ahead of time. And sometimes, doesn't that discourage us in prayer? So, oh Lord, I'll pray if you'll tell me everything that's going to happen. If you explain it all to me, then I'll get on board with your plan. You know, that's not the way that it works. Shooting arrows in this instance was ineffective because it wasn't repeated enough. And isn't it just that way with our prayers? You know, you, you prayed three times. Hmm. 
Too bad. You know, if you would have prayed six times, you would have seen a lot more results. Well, if I would have known that, I would have prayed more. Well, now you know. Now you know that, that more prayer is more effective. And by the way, shooting the arrows had its strategic moment. And when the moment passed, it was gone. You know, I just imagine King Joash saying, Oh, well, Elijah, now I'll shoot some more arrows. And Elijah goes, No, 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 you don't get it. Your moment to seize this by faith is past. Isn't that how it is in prayer, too? There's a strategic moment in prayer that we need to make everything that we can of. And therefore, for all of these reasons, it says here that the man of God was angry with him. Because the king did not seize the strategic moment, Israel would only enjoy three victories over the Syrian army instead of the many more that they could have enjoyed. And i tell you what, this is a great encouragement in the Christian life that there are a lot of situations in which we should keep shooting the arrows but instead, we content ourselves with, with, with just a small effort. I'll tell you exactly how the king should have done it. He should have started shooting arrows and kept doing it until the prophet told him to stop. He should have got more arrows if he had the chance. He should have called up the arrow delivery service and had him deliver more arrows to wherever he was. He should have kept shooting arrows and said, I'm going to continue doing this and just not give up. This is great encouragement for us in our Christian life because oftentimes God opens up a door, God gives us a direction, but we just stop short of it. But we need to keep shooting the arrows. You need to keep shooting in the battle against sin. You need to keep shooting in the attainment of Christian knowledge. You need to keep shooting in the attainment of faith. You need to keep shooting to do more for the kingdom of God. You need to keep shooting because I'll tell you what, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're not going to stop shooting. So you need to keep persistent in what you're going to do. When God invites us to take something boldly by faith, we've got to receive it boldly by faith. And we need to know that he's a great king who's honored when we take things boldly. And look at the result of it. It says it right there in verse 19. But now you will strike Syria only three times. As it happened, life and death depended on how many arrows King Joash shot to the ground. When he had the opportunity to shoot the arrows, it probably seemed like a very small thing to him. Big deal. What's this? I'm just shooting arrows out of a window. What eternal consequence does that? But he, he didn't know that God's plan for a nation and for his seemingly small actions were very vitally connected. I love an instance like this. I'd love to get inside of King Joash's head and think of all the excuses I would make if I was in his position. Well, listen, I, I stopped shooting because um, well, I don't want to be presumptuous and ask for too much. Well, you know, I, I stopped shooting because I'm not a very good archer. Uh, I, I stopped shooting because Elisha didn't help me more. You know, he put his hands on me for that first arrow. If he would have helped me more, I would have shot more. I stopped shooting because I thought three was plenty enough. I stopped shooting because I didn't think it would do any good. I stopped shooting because, because, oh, because I wasn't in a shooting mood. I didn't feel like it. I stopped shooting because I didn't want to get overexcited with the shooting business. You see, the point of it is, little things can determine a lot. Again, I have to read you this quotation from Spurgeon. It's wonderful. He says, so there be some who think that the hearing of the gospel is a little thing. 
Life, death, and hell, and worlds unknown may hang upon the preaching and the hearing of a sermon. To hear attentively and to not be disturbed in the sermon may seem a very insignificant thing, and yet the catching of a word may result in either the attainment of faith or the absence of faith, and so the salvation that comes by faith. Shooting arrows are little things, but God often makes great things to hang upon little things. Well, that's the end of the story of Elisha, or just about. Look at verse 20. Then Elisha died, and they buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of that year. So it was, as they were burying a man, that suddenly they spied a band of raiders. And they put the man in the tomb of Elijah. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elijah, he revived and stood on his feet. Wow. Now, the first thing I think is remarkable about this is that Elisha died. I have to wonder if Elisha didn't think that maybe a flaming chariot from heaven wouldn't come and receive him just like it did his mentor. After all, he did receive the inheritance of his ministry, didn't he? But it didn't. Listen, yes, sometimes some people are favored with spectacular and dramatic things like flaming chariots that carry you up to heaven. Other people, they just die. And that was Elisha. But then we read this strange instance that one time when people were burying another man in a hurry, and when the man was let down and when he touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now, for a detailed and, and, and really deeply understood explanation of this miracle, you'll have to talk to somebody else other than by me. I don't understand this weird miracle. This is just one of the strange miracles of the Bible. There's little explanation in the silence of the record. It doesn't indicate that there's any inherent uh, power in the bones of Elijah to resuscitate others. It seemed to be a one-time event. They didn't dig up the bones of Elijah and start touching dead people with them. You, you know, I don't know. There's no explanation for this. This is the first and probably the last account of a true miracle being worked by the bones of a dead man. But I want you to notice this. That this is one of the passages of Scripture that the Roman Catholic Church uses to justify its veneration of relics. You know why they say, oh, I've got a bone from the thigh of St. Peter, and isn't it wonderful? Oh, it's great. It's they say, well, look, God works great miracles through the bones of his prophets. Well, I don't think you can take anything from one strange occurrence in uh, 2 Kings chapter 13. On to verse 22. We read, and Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence. You, you see, God allowed this oppression from Syria to discipline the wayward nation. But listen, God still showed his graciousness to Israel even when they were under discipline. And you know, if you've ever felt like you've been under the correcting hand of God, you know that at the same time, God has a way of showing his goodness to you, even in the midst of that correction. And that's exactly what was going on. Now, th these two verses, 24 and 25. Now, Hazael, king of Syria, died. Then Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his place. And Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, recaptured from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoahaz, his father, by war. Three times Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. Now what did Elisha promise with those three arrows? That would be 
three victories won against Syria. But only three. It could have been more if he would have taken it by faith, illustrated by the arrows shot through the window. So now, going on in here, chapter 14. Now, in chapter 14, we're going to have one king of Judah and one king of Israel. We start off here with a king of Judah. We recognize this in the books of First and Second Kings, that we'll talk about the kings of Israel for a while, then we'll talk about the kings of Judah for a while, and go back and forth between the northern and the southern kingdom. Verse 1, chapter 14. In the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoshaphat, Jehoahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehadan of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like his father David. He did everything as his father Joash had done. However, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So here, Amaziah, son of the great reforming king of Judah, King Joash, continued the generally godly reign that was began by his father. He had a godly father. He received a godly inheritance in reigning over the southern kingdom of Judah, and he continued on. But aren't you struck by that phrase that you and I saw there in verse 3, where it says, yet not like his father David. Compared to Joash, Amaziah faithfully continued his policies. Yet some of those policies allowed compromises such as the allowing of continued sacrifices and incense offerings on the high places. So compared to his father, he was a good comparison. Compared to David, who was the greatest merely human king to reign over Israel, then Amaziah didn't match up so well. I have to say, this this is absolutely amazing to me. We read this and it's, oh yes, well okay, I get the point, you know, he reigned good, not as good as David. But then we stop and we scratch our heads and we say, you know, David's reign was not exactly this picture of perfection and holiness, right? There were some notable scandals during the reign of David. There were some real difficulties. Yet nevertheless, God had his stamp of approval upon David because his heart after God was more than enough to compensate for any of the failings of his character that emerged. David had some notable sin, but he also had a notable repentance And he had a notable healing in his relationship with God. Anyway, going on here, verse 5. Now what happened? As soon as the kingdom was established in his hand, that he executed his servants who had murdered his father the king. But the children of the murderers he did not execute according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord commanded, saying, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers, but a person shall be put to death for his own sin. Now again, if we remind ourselves, going way back into some previous chapters of the book of Second King, the father of Amaziah, Joash, was assassinated while still in office. And so therefore, when Amaziah came to the throne, he was both just and wise. He eliminated those who found the assassin. It was good for him to execute those who assassinated his father, but at the same time, the children of those murderers, he did not execute. The children of the murderers, he said, no, 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 the law of God says that we should not execute them, therefore we will not. Now, you say, well, so what? You just have to remember something. 
Amaziah went against all the conventional practices of his day. It was very unusual for a king in his situation to not kill every person in the family of those who had conspired against his family. That's the way they did justice back then. If you try to assassinate the king, not only do you die, but every last person in your family dies. That's just the way they did things. Amaziah said, I'm not going to be ruled by the way people do things in this world. I'm going to be ruled by the word of God. Verse 7 gives us another commendable thing about Amaziah. It says, he killed 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and took Selah by war and called its name Jokthiel to this day. So this shows us the military might of Amaziah and how he successfully subdued the weaker nations surrounding Judah. It tells us that he took this city Selah by war. Now, some scholars believe that this is the ancient rock city in the desert, also known as Petra. Uh, Other people believe it was a different place. One way or another, this was a very significant victory from Amaziah. I have to tell you something, though. And this is sort of interesting when you compare 2 Kings with 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles will give you various information bits that we didn't have in 2 Kings. And so if you read 2 Chronicles chapter 25, it gives more background to this very event. It tells us that Amaziah gathered together a huge army in Judah to go against Edom. He gathered together, and I'm quoting now, 300,000 choice men able to go to war who could handle the spear and shield. That's a pretty good army, right? But he also hired 100,000 mercenary soldiers from the northern kingdom of Israel. But a prophet came to him and warned him not to use the mercenary soldiers from Israel because God was not with that rebellious and idolatrous kingdom. Amaziah was convinced, I'm going to trust God, and he sent the mercenaries from Israel away. He even paid them what he said he was going to pay them. He just accepted the loss of the money as a step of obedience to God. And God blessed that step of faith, and he gave them a very convincing victory over the Edomites. Now, that was courageous. You know, he had his plan, he had his way, but the prophet of God came and told him what to do, and he sent away the mercenary soldiers, and he relied just on the people in his own kingdom, and God did a great work. However, Second Chronicles also tells us this, that Amaziah trusted God for the victory over Edom, but immediately after that victory over the Edomites, his heart turned from God. Let me read to you from Second Chronicles chapter 25, verse 14. Now it was so. After Amaziah came from the slaughter of the Edomites, that he brought the gods of the people of Seir, set them up to be his gods, and bowed down before them and burned incense to them. Whoa! Now that is bad. Because it's ingratitude. God gave you a great deliverance, and what are you doing? You're turning your heart from him in pride as soon as God gives you that great deliverance. So that makes verse 8 and following make much more sense. Look at it here, beginning at verse 8. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us face one another in battle. So now do you understand why he did that? He just came out of this victorious battle against the Edomites. His head is filled with the pride of victory. 
and his heart is filled with the worship of other gods. Anyway, going on. And Jehoash, the king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, The thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son as wife. And a wild beast that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle. You have indeed defeated Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Glory in that, and stay at home. For why should you meddle with trouble so that you fall, you and Judah with you? But Amaziah would not heed. Therefore Jehoahash king of Israel went out, and he and Amaziah king of Judah faced one another at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his tent. You can just picture this in your mind, can't you? The arrogant Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, man, I defeated the Edomites. God is with me. I'm going to go up and do something against those Israelites too. And the king of Israel, who is not a godly man, says, young man, why don't you settle down a little bit? I, I love the illustration. He says, he says, the thistle that was, uh, it says, um, the thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon saying, give your daughter to my son as the wife. And, and you understand what he's saying here, right? I'm the cedar, you're the thistle. I'm the big sturdy tree, you're just a sharp thorny plant. Don't have an overly high estimation of yourself. But he wouldn't listen. Instead he said, come, let us face one another in battle. Again, I have to refer you to 2 Chronicles chapter 5 for more background to this event. When Amaziah sent away the Israelite mercenaries, they weren't happy even though he paid them for not fighting. Now, that's a pretty good deal, right? You get paid for not fighting. But they probably counted on receiving much more in spoil from the war. And so as they returned to Israel, they raided some of the cities of Judah on the way back. And that was the political motivation for Amaziah's attack against Israel. And I'll tell you, he had every reason to believe that he would be successful. He recently assembled a 300,000-man army that killed 20,000 Edomites in a victory over Edom. And Jehoahaz seemed very weak. Do you remember when we read just last chapter that in Israel they only had 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers? That was at this very time. So the king of Judah said, man, this is easy. I'll walk all over these guys. But the king of Israel warned him. He, he, he said, listen, don't do it. I'm like the cedar. You're like the thistle. Don't, don't imagine yourself as my equal. And then he said a great line there. He said, why should you meddle with trouble so that you fall, you and Judah with you? Amaziah should have listened to this word from Jehoash, but he didn't. He provoked a fight he should have avoided. He wasn't considering things from a godly perspective. So what, what was the result of it? Look at it here in verse 13. Then Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh, and he went to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. And he took all the gold and silver, all the articles that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and hostages and returned to Samaria. Wow! Now, I just want you to think about this for a minute. These are all sons of Israel. These are the ten northern tribes attacking the two southern tribes and stealing things from the temple. You see, because of his foolish attack against Israel, Amaziah lost his freedom for a time and he became a prisoner of the king of Israel. 
But not only that, he also saw the defenses of Jerusalem broken down when the king of Israel came and he broke down the walls of Jerusalem. And then finally, he lost the treasures of the people of God because he took all the gold and silver from the temple of God. Even hostages that were taken from Jerusalem to Samaria. I want you to think about this. The decision to attack the northern kingdom of Israel was the decision of one man alone. But yet all of God's people had to pay a great price for it. It was really true what he should have listened to from the mouth of the king of the north, northern tribes, the, the, the king Jehoaz. He should have listened to that word, why do you meddle with trouble so that you fall? Listen, this is a good instruction for us in our Christian life. We can get into a tremendous amount of trouble just by meddling in things that aren't our business. You know, it's just, why are you getting involved in this trouble? It's not your business. We need to be cautious about this. You know, not everything going on around you is your business. Not all the little dramas, not all the little things going on in lives around, it's not all your business. Now, maybe some of it is. Maybe prayerfully you need to consider and seek the Lord and figure out what's your business, but you know that all of it isn't your business. But we have that tendency, don't we? Or at least some of us do. Just this tendency to meddle with trouble so that we fall. Well, certainly this was the case of Amaziah. Look at how it continues here in verse 15. It says, Now the rest of the acts of Jehoash, which he did, his might and how he fought with Amaziah king of Israel, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. So Jehoash rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Then Jeroboam, his son, raised in his place, reigned in his place. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And they formed a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem. And he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and killed him there. Then they brought him on horses, and he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. He built Aloth and restored it to Judah after the king rested with his fathers. No doubt it was the embarrassing loss against the northern kingdom of Israel that made people within the government, within the kingdom of Amaziah, raise up and say, this man is not competent to serve as our king. And they had a little revolution and they took him from the throne. It wasn't a complete revolution because they put his son back up on the throne. By the way, should we just remind ourselves of how remarkable that is? You assassinate the king, but you put his son on the throne. Isn't that strange? Now, you know why it happened that way? Not because these were guys who said, well, we must do it but because God's hand was overruling all things and God had made a promise. Who did he make the promise to? To Amaziah? No, he made the promise to David. And he said, your royal line will always sit over Judah. And so even very strange instances like this, because let me tell you, in the world back then and even today, it just doesn't work that way. Let's execute the king and put his son on the throne. No, how do you do it? Let's execute the king and all of his potential errors. We'll put our own guy on the throne. That's how it happened time and again in the northern kingdom of Israel, but not in the southern kingdom. It always stayed with the royal line of David. 
Well, in any way, when they made this plot against him, it says that he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and killed him. They assassinated him, just like his father was assassinated as well. And it says, and the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and they made him king instead of his father. Now, Azariah also has another name. He's also known by a variant name known as Uzziah. And he turns out to be one of the greatest kings of Judah after David, Uzziah. Uh, By the way, who was king at the same time for some of the ministry of Isaiah. Do you remember that great passage in the book of Isaiah? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And then he goes on. Well, we'll talk more about Uzziah in future chapters, because here at verse 23, we transition back up to the northern kingdom of Israel, and we consider the successor of Joash. His name was Jeroboam II. But I just want you to consider here that here we have uh, two kings in a row in Judah who are both assassinated, who essentially were good men, but made critical mistakes, and then now the third Uzziah, who's going to be raised up, and we'll read more about him in future studies. But here now, verse 27, or verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. Now again, it says Jeroboam, but don't let it confuse you. This is not the same Jeroboam who initiated the civil war between the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. This is sometimes called in books and such, Jeroboam II. It says here, going on, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, he was the first Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the sea of the Arba, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amitti, the prophet who was from Gath, Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. I just want you to look at this. And think over it. Chew over this for a minute. Jeroboam II was a wicked king who continued the politically motivated idolatry of his namesake, Jeroboam I, also known as Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And during his reign, the prophets Jonah and Amos spoke boldly for God. Read the book of Amos and tell me if Israel was a godly nation during this time. It was not. But nevertheless, in a strange way, his reign was blessed. Did you see it? It says it right there. It says, He restored the territory of Israel, for the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. Out of great mercy, God showed kindness to a disobedient Israel ruled by an evil king. I gotta say, this is amazing. Doesn't it seem to you that in some way, God is also be almost being more gracious to the northern kingdom of Israel than he's being to the southern kingdom of Judah? Well, why would that be? I'll tell you why. Because the southern kingdom of Judah was closer to him. 
The Bible tells us that judgment begins at the house of God. And that God will deal with his own children sometimes more strictly than he'll deal with non-believers. Why? Because they're his kids. Now listen, if I see somebody else's children misbehaving, I'm not going to go correct them. I mean, I suppose I might if they're getting really out of control. But just normal disobedience, it's like, listen, they're not my kids. They've got their own thing to do. But when I see my own children misbehaving, I feel a greater responsibility to correct them. If it seems to you that God is almost being more strict with the southern kingdom of Judah than with the northern kingdom of Israel, I think you're right. He is. Now, it's interesting here that this prophet Jonah spoke to them during these days, it says, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. It's almost certainly the same Jonah who was, excuse me, it's almost certainly the same Jonah who was famous for his missionary trip to Nineveh. And apparently he had a very strong ministry among his own people, not only the people of Nineveh. So here, concluding the chapter, we have the last couple of verses, summarizing the reign of Jeroboam II. It says, now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, his might, how he made war, and how he recaptured for Israel from Damascus and Hamath what had belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jeroboam rested with his fathers, the kings of Israel. Then Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. Isn't that interesting? I'll tell you what's interesting about it. What a prosperous and seemingly blessed reign that Jeroboam II he had. had. Did, did you read it there? His might, how he made war, how he recaptured for Israel from Damascus and Hamath what had belonged to Judah. The, the, the reign of Jeroboam II was a time of economic and political and material prosperity for Israel. Yet it wasn't because of their own merit or goodness, but because of God's great mercy to Israel. It's interesting, when you study archaeology, you see that archaeology confirms the economic might of Jeroboam II. In the age prior to Jeroboam II, the houses in Israel's cities were roughly the same size. But archaeologists find a change starting in the 8th century BC in ancient cities like Tizra. They have a neighborhood of large, expensive houses and another neighborhood of small, crowded structures, smaller than the houses from previous years. The the, the larger houses are filled with the marks of prosperity. And the oppressive rich of Israel thought that they could be safe there. But God's judgment came against the large houses as well, as is recorded in the prophecies of Amos, especially Amos chapter 3. You know what I find very remarkable about this? is that there was great prosperity, security, outward signs of blessing here on the reign of Jeroboam II. But it was all empty. He wasn't right with God. All right. Here's the consideration for this evening. Don't we have the tendency in ourselves to think, man, I'm blessed, I'm happy, things are going good. I must be right with God. And don't we have the tendency with ourselves or maybe with other people, you look at somebody else who's afflicted, who's really going through it, and you say, man, I hope they get it right with the Lord. You know, 
they should come up to the place where I'm at. I just want to remind you that it's not always that simple, is it? It's not always so simple to say, oh man, everything's great, there's money in the bank, and there's security in the home, and everything's good, I must be right with God. Maybe not. You could write that over Jeroboam II's reign. Don't let that deceive you. Don't let contentedness in your outward circumstances deceive you into thinking that therefore you're right with God. Then again, don't let trouble make you think automatically that you're not right with God. You can be in the center of God's will and be in a lot of trouble and difficulty. Then again, you can be very far out of God's will and have a lot of outward blessing and prosperity. You know, sometimes I think the devil is happy to send a comfortable, prosperous life to us if it'll help us send us on our way to hell. Or at least in hardness of heart against God or ineffective Christian life. Now look, I'm not here to say, gee, uh, you're happy and blessed, therefore you're not right with God. Nobody's ever going to say that. But what I am going to say is don't let your outward circumstances automatically measure where you're at with the Lord. You know how you need to measure where you're at with the Lord? Get down on your knees, ask God to search your heart, and do an honest inventory of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. I'm not talking about the things you have. I'm not talking about the ease of life around you. I'm talking about the genuine fruit of God's Spirit in your life. Is it evident? Is it evident in the eyes of other people? Maybe you can see the fruit, but you must be keeping it in your pocket because nobody else can see it. It should be out evident for everybody to see. I'm just really struck by this idea, by the seemingly evil yet blessed reign of Jeroboam II. But the other thing it shows us, it shows us that we serve a God of great mercy, right? I mean, let's face it. He doesn't deal with us as we deserve. Maybe some people would get offended at this, at the way God dealt with Jeroboam II, and they sort of stamp their feet a little bit, say, Lord, why are you blessing him? He's not right with you. And listen, this happens, right? It doesn't just happen back in the days of Jeroboam II. Many people today have asked the same question. Lord, Lord, why are you blessing that man? He's not right with you. He's not as godly as I am. Well, why are you blessing him? And if you listen very carefully at those moments, you can hear the voice of God whispering to you. And he's saying, uh, maybe he'll shout, I don't know. But he'll say something to you along these lines. He'll say, do you really want me to start treating you as you deserve? If that's what you want, the God says, I can do that. If you want me to start treating every, I'll treat this man as he deserves, and I'll treat you as you deserve. Is that how you want it? No, 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 Lord. Treat me with grace, but him with justice. No, God says, no, thank you. No, thank you. My grace is free. My mercy is rich. And I give it or withhold it based on my own wisdom, based on my own knowledge. We have to be at peace with that. And we have to not be satisfied with an easy, blessed life telling us that we're necessarily close to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for these warnings from your word. And in the several kings that we've seen tonight, Lord, we've seen kings that had opportunities to take great things in faith and didn't take them. We've seen kings, Lord, who uh, should have not been so reckless 
but should have not meddled into other things to their hurt. And Lord, we've seen other disobedient kings that seem to be for some reason strangely blessed. Lord, when we see these kings and their, their weaknesses and their failures, it all the more makes us want to praise and honor our great King Jesus. Say, oh Lord, thank you for giving us a perfect king, a perfect Messiah, greater than King David himself. We thank you for it all, Lord. And we pray that you would not allow us to become content in a low level of our Christian life or experience before you, just because our outward circumstances seem easy or comfortable. Lord, speak to us, maybe tonight before we go to sleep. Speak to us as we put our head on the pillow tonight about the true state of our soul with you. And if there's any hindering or defeating sin in our life that we're blinding ourselves to. We know that you'll deal gently with us in these areas. So speak to us, Lord. And we long to hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen.